Welcome to the West Block. This week, a one-on-one -on -one with the Prime Minister for a wide-ranging interview on oil, China, and during this holiday season, the faith and values that underpin his work in office. Then we'll tour the hallowed halls of Centre Block as the country says goodbye to the iconic building for at least a decade. And maybe Christmas doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. How the Grinch stole Christmas like you've never heard it before. I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and this is the West Block Podcast. Well, 2018 has been a year full of political challenges, from the oil crisis in Alberta to immigration and diplomatic spats with China and Saudi Arabia, not to mention deficits. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is the man who's had to handle it all. As Canada's most powerful politician, he is ultimately accountable. He agreed to sit down with the West Bloc for a year-end interview, looking at his successes and challenges. Prime Minister, welcome to the West Block. Thank you, Mercedes. Uh, you've spoken in this chamber so many times. It looks a little different today. What message do you want to send to Canadians as we head into Christmas and the election in 2019? Oh, just that uh, political debate that happens here, that happens in uh, the West Block that we'll be moving to after Christmas, uh, will continue to be focused on them. We'll be focused on bringing people together and talking about how we try to respond to the big challenges we're facing now and into the future. And the fact that we come together as representatives from every corner of the country to serve and, and bring forward the concerns of, their, uh, of our citizens uh, is one of the extraordinary strengths of Canada. Well, and speaking of concerns of your citizens and big issues, oil, of course, a huge one right now. Your government has announced over $1.6 billion for Alberta, but it's not for more pipelines or for rail cars. I think, first of all, we, we need to understand how much of a crisis uh, folks in Alberta are going through right now. Uh, families are suffering. This is an extremely difficult time. We know the only real solution uh, for uh, Alberta oil companies and for the industry is uh, to get our resources to new markets other than the United States. States. That's been something that has been at the top of the industry's wish list for about a decade and a half now. Uh, and uh, we think we're getting closer than we ever have before, but there's, a, there, there's still a lot of work to do. Why not buy the rail cars that the Alberta government's asking for? We're, our officials are engaged very much with, uh, with the Alberta government, and we're looking at that as, as, a, as a possible solution. Uh, we've heard from farmers uh, and other folks who are worried about uh, picking one important commodity over another. We know farmers have had challenges with getting their, uh, uh, their, their grain to, uh, to ports on rail. We need to make sure there's no unintended consequences. But we're absolutely uh, looking at how the best solution is. We're working with the Alberta government. And if uh, rail cars end up being uh, the right solution, then we're, we'll be happy to, to, uh, to participate. In terms of going forward, you are, of course, running Trans Mountain. It goes through British Columbia. British Columbians say, when Quebec said they didn't want a pipeline, they didn't get a pipeline. When we said we don't want a pipeline, we're having one bought by the federal government forced down our throat. What do you say to British Columbians? Uh, actually, the British Columbian government uh, under Christy Clark was supportive of the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. Uh, there was a change in government and the government was opposed, but there are also a lot of folks in BC, including Indigenous communities, who understand that it is important for us to get our resources to new markets other than the United States. How serious do you think Western alienation is? I haven't met a lot of Canadians in any part of the country that have ill will towards any other Canadians in any other part of the country. Although Albertans were met, booing French the other day. Met, I haven't met a lot of Albertans who genuinely wish ill of Quebecers, and I haven't met many Quebecers at all who wish ill of Albertans. 
I have seen politicians uh, of various stripes in various places trying to uh, foment negative sentiments and play the kinds of divisive cards that we've seen in the past. That's not my job. Is part of this based on votes? Because that's one of the theories. There's only a few seats in Alberta for the Liberal Party, and th therefore and there's been I, a reluctance to act. bought a pipeline? <laughs> Because because but we're looking for more line. seats. That was the only one for sale at that particular moment. I mean, what do you want me to say? This was the project we needed to move forward in the right way on. It was about to be cancelled by the proponent. One of the big concerns for Canadians this year has been asylum seekers mm. and immigration. Your tweet saying, welcome to Canada, is often cited as the reason why these people are, are pouring across the border. Do you ever regret that tweet? I think, first of all... Um, if people are you know, in the midst of migration around the world right now, um, it's not because of a tweet restating almost word for word Canadian policy on refugees, because that's exactly what it was. And certainly if people are uh, fleeing the United States right now or choosing to leave the United States right now, it's not something I said. It is perhaps domestic realities within the political context in the United States the that is driving people, people to move or to make certain decisions. Uh, we have um, made sure that anyone coming to Canada, including through an irregular border crossing like, like Roxham Roll Road in Quebec, gets a full security screening as soon as they arrive, gets put into our refugee processing system and will have their file properly analyzed. Are you concerned that this is going to turn when Canadians you against have immigration? Politicians deliberately disseminating falsehoods like the global compact on immigration is a binding attack on our sovereignty. I mean, these are the kinds of things that unfortunately the Conservative Party has chosen to start spreading as information when they know, in fact, that that's patently false, we see a political party going to a place that no mainstream political party in Canada has gone before, which is paying a very, very dangerous game of starting to turn Canadians against immigration when most Canadians know full well that uh, new families coming to their communities, uh, integrating, creating jobs, creating opportunities is part of what is growing and strengthening our economy. China has mm. been a huge issue for your government in recent weeks. Do you believe that China is a national security threat? Yeah, I think China, as the world's, world's uh, second largest uh, economy and growing, is going to be a place that Canada needs to have a consistent and uh, very carefully thought out policy on. We need to make sure that there is a, a framework, a predictable level of protections for Canadian businesses and for Canadians uh, when uh, they go to China, when they engage with China, while at the same time we're standing up consistently for uh, the rule of law, whether it's concerns around uh, the South China Sea, uh, whether it's concerns around uh, treatment of Uyghurs in, in, uh, in, East, in Western China. Uh, there are uh, questions that we're always highlighting, and we're very much on those two tracks of engaging substantively in the kinds of values-based issues that Canadians expect and looking for ways to uh, protect and promote uh, Canadian interests. There are two Canadians who have been detained in China uh, in the wake of the arrest of the CFO of Huawei here in Canada. A third who's been detained who Global Affairs is saying it looks like isn't related to that. Have you had a chance to speak with President Xi about the Canadians who've been detained? No, I, I have not uh, reached out to speak with... Uh, Why not? Uh, because when you deal with um, 
consular cases. I mean, we've demonstrated a, a, a certain level of success by escalating them through the proper processes, not going already into um, into a, a, a place where uh, we might have unintended consequences for a top level of engagement. We function on a rule of law basis. We, we if we're going to arrest or detain someone, uh, we're going to do it based on our rules without any political interference. China contends that it is doing the same thing, and we're going to take them at their word on that. You don't we're, believe we're going a to link. say We are going to say, okay, you've detained these people. We are going to take this as, as you say, that's independent from, from anything else going on. So, great. Share with us the evidence. Explain to us why you're doing this. Allow us full consular access. Let's go through the proper rule of law steps. And this is something that comes down to, to, to a really important principle for Canadians. Now, there are folks out there who wonder if we're, we're Boy Scouts because uh, you know, we're always applying the rules and, and, and you know, being responsible about the, the, the rules-based order and the rule of law when other countries are perhaps not doing that. Well, I can't speak for what other countries are going to do or what other choices other countries make, but I do know that a, a rules-based system and a protection of the rule of law isn't just about being you know, good or nice. It's about protecting all of us and, and all of and our And that citizens. works at home, but it doesn't necessarily work for Canadians who are abroad, but, like Canadians in China right but now. But if we were to start changing the way we obey our own rules, we would then be perpetrating a system where there are no rules. Have you spoken to President Trump and asked him to go to bat to try to help Canada out here? Because his most recent statement that basically this could be a bargaining chip, I can't imagine that's helpful. Other countries will make determinations about what they say. We will continue to apply. But uh, have you the asked the Americans for their backing uh, at, at the have, presidential level? We have communicated our, our, uh, our questions to uh, our counterparts in the United States. I have not spoken with the president on this issue yet. In China, one of the rules is that any company must work for Chinese intelligence if it is requested. Huawei, of course, is hoping to come here to Canada uh, and have their 5G network. And mm. a number of your Five Eyes allies have advised this is not a good idea. They've refused it in their own countries. You say the bureaucrats are looking at this, but as the Prime Minister, after watching this unfold, why would you ever allow Huawei to operate? We are uh, certainly taking a look at, at proposals and evidence by our partners, including the United States, on uh, why they're making certain decisions. We will uh, take very, very seriously what it is we need to do to protect Canadians, but we will not let politics interfere with that process. We're going to make decisions based on you know, what is right for Canadians, what is the best recommendation of the experts when it comes to national security and, and intelligence. Prime Minister, as we come into the Christmas season, a lot of Canadians are reflecting on their faith, whether it's Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, secularism. What does faith mean to you? Um, my Catholicism underpins uh, my, my values, my approach to um, to the role I have to serve my community and to serve my country and to serve my world and fellow citizens with uh, the best I possibly can. It uh, grinds me in a, it grounds me in a sense that we are, um, you know, we are just passing through this world and need to serve as best we possibly can with, uh, with peace and, and, uh, and justice in our hearts. Prime Minister, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Mercedes. Thank <laughs> you.
It is the end of an era. Centre Block is an icon of Canadian democracy. The soaring Peace Tower and ornate halls have witnessed the country's history. But democracy is on the move. Renovations are forcing Centre Block to close for at least a decade. The House of Commons will be relocating to the West Block and the Senate to a historic train station. I recently took a tour of Centre Block with a few of the people who call it home, starting with the curator of the House of Commons, Joanna Mizgawa. So, Joanna, this is the rotunda. Tell me a little bit about this space. So this is really the main entrance for Centre Block. So what uh, the architect John Pearson wanted people to have a sense of is the um, depth and breadth of the country. So that's why you see all of the coats of arms for the provinces and territories and some of the animals and plant life from all across, the, all across our country so that um, members, when they come here, have a sense of where they come from, why they're here, and what they're here to do. And then, as I said, all of the coats of arms, including um, the sort of most recent addition to Confederation, of course, with Nunavut. So their um, coat of arms was put in um, almost 20 years ago when they became part of Confederation. We were able to add it onto the space. And that's one of the hallmarks of center block as well, that the um, sculptors are constantly adding to the space so that there's always a layer of the present and looking forward to the future. What was this built from? What are the carvings made out of? This is uh, limestone and um, there's this beautiful pattern in the limestone. If you see it's not a, a kind of solid stone, that's because there are fossils all over the place within the stone. So you have this sense of the actual and where we come from all over the building. Then Joanna took me to the Hall of Honor. It's a stunning space that unifies the entire building. When you come in, you get a sense of the place right away, and it's obvious when you come into this building that something special happens here and that it's important. And I think that is really conveyed in a, in a space like this. Next to the foyer of the House of Commons, a place where I've spent many hours of my life chasing ministers, scrumming MPs, and listening to press conferences. When it isn't being used for those functions, it's the foyer to the House of Commons. So those, through those doors, members would come up and they would come into this space. And um, the ceiling, it was designed by the architect, John Pearson, and it's one of the features of the building that relates most squarely to government, not parliament. There are symbols of the different ministries. There's the, the, the kind of clear relation that the legislation of the country happens beyond those doors. Then we walked across the building to the Senate foyer. In terms of the architecture of the building, of course, they're mirrors to one another. So there's a set of stairs and an entrance for the senators to come up. If you come into this space, and we look up, you'll see that there is another stained glass ceiling. Although this one, because of the relationship of the Senate to the Sovereign, um, the symbols are a little bit different, of course. Is there a reason why the Senate colour is red and the House of Commons is green? Well, red goes back, of course, to the monarchy and to that kind of luxuriousness of, uh, of, of, of a richness of colour. And then on the House side, of course, it's the House of Commons, the space of the common people. So the green actually relates to kind of the village square and the green lawn of a place where the community would gather for decisions to be made. From the Senate, we visited a sacred spot in the heart of Centre Block, the Memorial Chamber. 
It contains books of remembrance naming each person who has given their life in service of Canada. At 11 o'clock each day, a page is carefully turned to allow each name to be on display at least once a year. From there, we walked over to a place full of stories where I met the man who loves to tell them, Jeff Regan, the Speaker of the House of Commons. What an incredible office this is. Well, it's kind of shabby, but they make, they make the Speaker <laughs> use it. Incredible history in this room, too. Tell me a little bit about some of the people who have been here in this room. Um, well, there's, there's this young fellow over here. Of course, oh, may recognize him. You might recognize him, who was here on December the 40th, 1941. He comes in as a photographer, a young photographer named Yusuf Karsh. Had his camera set up in a light, and Churchill says, why wasn't I told this? His staff kind of chuckle. He's still in a good mood. He lights up a cigar. Um, and he says to the photographer, you've got two minutes. But Karsh wants to capture the personality of this guy who is the leader of the free world. So he asked Churchill to remove the cigar. He declines to remove his cigar, of course. So Karsh reaches into his bag and pulls out a light meter. And he walks over to Churchill as if he's taking a reading so he can adjust the settings on his camera. And he says, forgive me, sir. He grabs the cigar. He walks back to the camera. He takes the picture. And that's the reaction he gets. It becomes perhaps the most famous photographic portrait ever taken. That's incredible. I had no idea that was taken in this office. Exactly. Thank you so much, sir. We said our goodbyes and I headed off to the only original part of the building, the incredible library, where parliamentary librarian Heather Lank explained why she thinks the space is so special. When you walk in, it has a completely different feel from the rest of the building. And you can even smell something different with the air from the books and the wood because the rest of the building as you know is mostly stone um, when you come in here you're struck by the difference in the tone and the color and the materials that are used so I love the fact that it, it captures so much of Canada's history you also have about 1600 carvings which are extraordinarily beautiful and of course having this statue which draws your eye up towards the dome I think it's something very special. It also has a, a sense of calm and peace and this is a place where parliamentarians and their staff can come for reflection, concentration, consultation with our staff. It's really a, a bit of an oasis where they can get important work done uh, on behalf of Canadians. Christmas isn't about the presents, decorations, or the fancy dinners. It's something we all know but can forget at this time of year. So here's a reminder from Parliament Hill. Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot. But the Grinch, who lived just north of Whoville, did not. The Grinch hated Christmas the whole Christmas season. Now please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. But I think that the reason, most likely of all, may have been that his heart was just two sizes too small. But whatever the reason, his heart or his shoes, he stood there on Christmas Eve hating the Who's. For he knew every Who down in Whoville beneath was very busy hanging a Holly Who wreath. And they're hanging their stockings. 
he snarled with a sneer. Tomorrow is Christmas. It's practically here. Then he growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming. I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming. For tomorrow, I know all the Who girls and boys will wake bright and early. They'll rush for their toys. They'll stand close together with Christmas bells ringing. They'll stand hand in hand, and those Who's will start singing. Why, for 53 years, I've put up with it now. I must stop Christmas from coming. But how? I know just what to do. The Grinch laughed in his throat. I'll make a quick Santa Claus hat and coat. Then he slid down the chimney a rather tight pinch, but if Santa could do it, then so could the Grinch, where the little Who stockings were hung all in a row. These stockings, he Grinch, are the first thing to go. Then he slithered and slunched with a smile most unpleasant around the whole room, and he took every present. Then thousand feet up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rode with his load to the tip-top to dump it. Poo-poo to the who's, he was grinchily humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. They're just waking up. I know just what they'll do. Their mouths will hang open in a minute or two. Then who's down in Whoville will cry, boo-hoo. And he did hear a sound rising over the snow. And it started in low, then it started to grow. But this sound wasn't sad. Why, this sound sounded merry. But it couldn't be so. But it was merry, very. Every who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing without any presents at all. It hadn't stopped Christmas from coming, it came. Somehow or other, it came just the same. He puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. And what happened then? Well, in Whoville, they say that the Grinch's small heart grew three sizes that day. And then the true meaning of Christmas came through. And the Grinch found the strength of 10 Grinches plus two. With a smile to his soul, he descended Mount Crumpet, cheerily blowing hoo-hoo on his trumpet. He rode into Whoville, he brought back their toys, he brought back their floof to the Who girls and boys. He brought everything back, all the food for the feast, and he himself, the Grinch, carved the roast beast. Merry Christmas, everyone. Thanks for checking out the West Block Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and listen on your Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, or wherever you find your podcast. And join the conversation at the West Block Facebook and check out our Instagram page. And please tune in again.